how do urbanization and rural development impact communities differently? How can we make public policy and enlightened self-interest advance climate action? Dr. Shiv Sameshwar is an expert on climate change and sustainable development. He has published widely on issues related to climate change mitigation and adaptation, as well as ecosystem management. Currently, he is a visiting professor at Columbia University, New York, and at Sciences Po Paris, where he served as the European Chair for Sustainable Development and Climate Transition. Dr. Shiv also contributed to the Sustainable Development Solutions Network. He is presently writing a book titled The Fallacy of Evidence-Based Policymaking. Dr. Shiv Somashwar, welcome to the Creative Process and One Planet podcast. Thank you, Mia. So you've just recently chaired a panel of the International Commission on Climate Action, and you teach a graduate course in sustainable development narratives, policymaking and practice. Can you give us a little background on your work? Okay, thanks, Mia. I spent more than 20 years at, at Columbia, and then my wife and I came to Paris. She works at UNESCO, and I was the founder chair of uh, Sustainable Development and Climate Transition at, at Sciences Po. So broadly, my area of work is sustainable development with a focus on climate. And it means how do you have economic growth that is socially equitable and environmentally sustainable? It's not just that you have ecological sustainability because lots of examples of ecologically sensitive growth need not be socially equitable. That's why this emphasis on just transition, not just about climate, but also about social equity in economic growth. And unlike in Europe, most parts of the world would look at you blankly if you talked about degrowth because they are hungry for growth. And so sustainable development is about managing these trade-offs, which is what I've been working on. My work is really focused on institutions and how do you kind of bring the best of science into development. And development is also spatially informed. It's not just the statistical averages because you have people living in cities, in villages, in homesteads. So how do you kind of actually be looking at geographically sensitive in your policymaking? And that comes from a background in planning and architecture. So speaking of cities, by I believe 2050, 75% of the world's population will be living in cities and we'll have to accommodate another 3.1 billion people. And people living in cities don't know what their future is going to look like. If you just address what you envision for our cities. Let me start with saying what we should not be looking at, which unfortunately a lot of well-informed development agencies are, and they call it climate-proofing cities. That is a mistake. You cannot climate-proof anything and also gives the population and policymakers a wrong sense. The correct term is climate smart. So how do you get climate smart? It's not easy. Despite what as researchers we say and promise, making climate smart development is challenging because it cuts across timescales. Let's say you have a fast growing city in a developing country that has five million population now, and it's likely to have seven, seven and a half million in 15 years. So in most parts of the world, in developing countries especially, Cities are already struggling to meet with the current resource needs of the population, whether it's potable, clean water, 100% uh, sanitation, reliable energy, transportation, minimizing air pollution, all of which in industrialized countries we take for granted. So the policymakers are already struggling. And then you tell them you really need to make it climate smart. And one of the tendencies is to focus only on climate as though the rest of the dynamics of demographic growth, changes in the structure of population through globalization, automation, job loss or job gain are somehow fixed in time. Policymakers don't have the luxury of focusing on just climate. They also need to focus on many of these other aspects at the same time. So when you talk about climate smart development, it's not just talking about another black box of a term, this whole system of resiliency. 
but it goes beyond that into making sure that the cities are in a position to meet the aspirations of the people now as well as in the future. And that's challenging because what you have to pay for this climate smart development is a current taxpayer system. Allowing for these longer term issues will cost a great deal of money to make it better for themselves in the future. That's a promise. And we get lost in the promises when you talk about intergenerational equity. Oh, it's important for the next generation. That is like waving a red flag in front of people who right now don't have enough. The Yellow Vest movement in France was a particular phenomena about people saying we care for the planet, but we also care for our own wallets. So when it comes to cities, we need to be particularly careful because cities are centers of political power and extremely well-meaning climate smart development can get completely rejected. So one needs to be really, really careful about focusing on people, on the stakeholders. And a key question I always ask my students when people use the term stakeholders, that's like a throwaway term. Oh, we need to get all the stakeholders around the table to ask, okay, what stake do they hold? What state does a civil society leader hold? What does a community member hold? Don't assume that they're holding a certain interest. Make that clear. Quincy, you mentioned black box and this year, especially we're all thinking about large language models. How could AI help us make some of these just transitions? Oh, that's a question I haven't given much thought to because the AI functions with information we have and what is fed into that. When it comes to issues of climate smart development, there are likely to be deep geographic biases because most of the information come from the global north. And so I would be really careful to assume that AI is in a position to help us with our climate change adaptation efforts. I am all for using technology and technological innovation, but again, use of AI should not be another black box like with climate modeling, where people don't fully understand. I have students who are extremely bright and passionate about climate change. When you ask them, how is climate change connected to weather? Several of them, they haven't really thought about how weather gets connected to climate variability, seasonal interannual variability, and how that's connected to climate change. So you really need to open up and explain these issues. AI for me is another kind of consideration that we should be open to, but be careful about. Indeed, and we still don't know how it's fully being tabulated, but you know, how far are we off track from getting to net zero by 2050? Oh, way, way, way off. Both is 1.5 degree aspirational goal of the Paris Climate Agreement of 2015. 2023, global average was off. But that doesn't mean it's going to be consistently that way because 1.5 in the Paris Climate Agreement is long term. So what happens is you're always looking backwards. We'll never know when the tipping point came. But I think for all intentions, 1.5 degrees is in the past. We really will be struggling to meet 2 degrees centigrade. This issue of net zero, that's another one of the stems that need to be opened up. Because when you talk about net zero, you're not talking of zero emissions. What you're talking of is emissions that have an equivalent amount sucked out, either by growing trees or through carbon sequestration technologies. And in the first flush post Paris Climate Agreement, a lot of companies and countries promised net zero, which I think was a good promise to begin with. Part of the net zero promise is also offsetting. That means we will come up with 20 tons of carbon dioxide here, in this part of the planet, but we'll plant trees, we'll make sure that 20 tons of carbon get sequestered in some other part of the planet. That'll work for the early movers because the price of carbon is determined by the carbon market, which still we don't have, but there are really good carbon market in Europe, ETS system. And now the beginnings of a countrywide carbon market in China and in parts of the US, in most other parts of the planet, there is no formal carbon market. It's mostly by taxing gasoline that you have a proto carbon market. 
So the latecomers, developing countries or companies that come late to the game are going to pay more for the same carbon. And this goes against the heart of one of the principles of UNFCCC, which is common but differentiated responsibility, CBDR, that industrialized countries have an obligation because they got a running lead. They polluted the global commons, in this case, the atmosphere, and increasingly the oceans. And so they have a responsibility which they accepted. But in practice, CBDR has been deeply, deeply problematic. Offsetting is one of those issues connected to net zero that has huge inequities built in. Recently, a colleague and I did a quick take on carbon offset projects across the world. And a lot of it is focused now on afforestation. It's really startling to find how little we can actually guarantee. We're not thinking about keeping carbon on the ground through growing trees for the next five to 10 years. We are promising that it's going to be for much longer. And if those trees are cut, and they're used in industries, will capture that carbon dioxide and at the same time grow more trees. But the institutional basis of offsetting has been very poorly attended to. In many parts of the world, it's waving your hands and saying, oh, no, no, we're going to take care of it uh, later on. The boxes have been ticked. But this is problematic because we don't fully get into issues of power and powerlessness. Why is it in the interest of certain stakeholders to sequester carbon, while it may not be in the interest of others because they want their aspirations, they want to urbanize, they want to have cities do better rather than hemmed in by offset promises. So in the report we did coming out from the Commission on International Climate Action, the School of International Affairs at Sciences Po Secretariat, we came up with a counterintuitive approach which said it's in the enlightened self-interest of governments and companies to work on issues of climate, especially on mitigation. It makes abundant economic and political sense for the European Union to go about its intended carbon border adjustment mechanism, not as a penalty system, but as a system of helping developing country companies do a better job in reducing the carbon footprint. It's in the interest of Europe which wants to be the first continent that is climate neutral. And I think they're doing amazing work, but they need to go about it in a different way. So we opened up this whole issue of enlightened self-interest in contrast to what many NGOs are talking about. Altruism should be the way forward. Altruism, according to us, is not going to be powerful enough as a way forward because there always will be self-interest. So rather than reject self-interest, we see how do you turn the self-interest and lighten for climate action? This is a whole other issue. And like some people put statistics out there that if the whole world transformed to regenerative agriculture, we could suck out of the atmosphere all the carbon that we're currently emitting. Oh, power to them. I'm not an expert at all. But what I've read is the promise of regenerative agriculture, for the most part, it's the uh, ability of soil to actually store carbon. A lot of it, I understand, is in the temperate zone. So there are really, really interesting work being done in the U.S., Australia, and very little of that beyond extremely small pilots is happening in parts of India, where I come from. They're all really at the pilot scale when it comes to carbon sequestration. I know that there are large-scale farms that were based on the industrial model, and they've transitioned to, to a gender of agriculture. But a lot of these farms that you're talking about, like maybe set in the middle of a a forest or something, so I would like to see how that would be adapted on scale. May I put your finger on it? You must have heard of this issue of REDD plus, that is reduced emission from deforestation, forest degradation. And the plus was to say it's not just for climate, you also have socioeconomic benefits. REDD plus has remained a promise because it's remained a promise at the pilot scale. We have hundreds, if not thousands, of small scale pilots that are going on 
the pilot scale and waiting for scaling up. But scaling up has been an issue. So again, I concern when people put the promise on silver bullets of regenerative agriculture or growing a trillion trees or sucking carbon through CCS technologies. Because what happens then is people take comfort that there is a practice or a technology around the corner. Hydrogen is another one. Fusion energy is yet another one. And I think we need to be going full throttle on all of those. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that we give up on mitigation or on climate risk management, which I think is technically the correct term to say adaptation. How do you manage the risk of a changing climate? How do you kind of emit less and get fossil fuel out of your system? And that again, long term, it's not for the next five to 10 years. So these kinds of promises invariably signal now we don't really need to do much on mitigation because something is there around the corner, whether it's regenerative agriculture, which holds enormous promise, or reforestation, green hydrogen especially. But we're not anywhere close to scaling up, and some of them have deep technological challenges. Yeah, and then there's the 24-hour solar energy from space. Oh, geoengineering. Yes. Lots of people are doing interesting science on the engineering and technology aspects, as well now increasing the governance aspects. Because here you have a promise of a global good to contest a global bad, carbon dioxide, methane, and others that result in global warming. But then what are the processes to involve policymakers, policymaking? And from where and across the world, how do you actually do it? And as with all technologies, as with all practices, there are going to be unintended impacts. And there are going to be parts of the planet that we know will be negatively impacted, right? For example, when you create a net cooling, how would it impact the global monsoonal systems? And in, in turn, how would it impact rainfed agriculture in parts of sub-Saharan Africa? So what's your responsibility as a right-minded, environmentally just group of people? I don't know if you read uh, Neil Stephenson's book. It's on this very question. Uh, of course, he writes really excellent fiction. But in this case, it comes close to home when you have this uh, multi-billionaire shooting off particulate matters because he's taken the whole thing in, into his own hands. He says, ah, the governments are useless. Anyway, so geoengineering has its champions. And there are people who say we shouldn't be doing anything. But I think we cannot foreclose any options because, as we said a few minutes ago, how far are we from 1.5 or even 2 degrees? And so I think we really need to have work done on all of these things. But when it comes to applying them, we need to be far more prudent and be far more effective with our institutions. It can't just be that we use the same existing institutions because they may not be fit for purpose. Just on that note, many people fault the United Nations, the UN. Oh, it's a useless kind of organization. They can't really take action. But actually, that's by design. The UN was never meant to take some of these actions because they are at the behest of member states. And if a single member state says, no, we can't, we don't want you to do this, they're stuck. And so in some sense, it's unfair to blame a system that's not been designed to be advancing the public good other than through means of communicating the right things and really exhorting the policymakers to do the right thing. You can't really fault them, especially on climate, because a lot of people kind of come down heavily on, oh, UN is kind of a useless system, they can't really do this, da-da-da. Okay, so what we need to do is Few countries should take matters in their own hands. That's a dangerous precedent. Oh, I agree. And it's the same thing for the IPCC. And some people, you know, criticize the IPCC for not having enough teeth. 
But a lot of people don't realize that the scientists writing the IPCC reports do it voluntarily, year after year, without pay, and the annual budget for operational expenses, I believe, is under 9 million Swiss francs. So it's kind of laughable to think that the people who are researching our future on this planet and making predictions about climate dangers receive so little support. You know, just to put that number into perspective, Amazon's Europe unit paid no taxes on $55 billion in sales in 2021, actually reported losses and received 1 billion euros in tax credits. So that's the imbalance of the world we're living in. And I don't know what we expect from the IPCC, whose reports are produced by volunteers. No, IPCC is really to bring the best of peer-reviewed science Mm -hmm. by design. They are not meant to come up with policies. Governments are interested in keeping power. They don't want to have a global entity that is not answerable to anyone. Many years ago, there was a whole issue about World Environment Organization, how to actually have World Environment Organization with teeth. You can tell countries should be doing or should not be doing. Never went anywhere. It was a fascinating idea, but in terms of practice, it didn't go anywhere because sovereign nation states, from the smallest to the largest, are not going to give up. They're not going to give up power easily. And so... When I talked about institutions, we really need to be prudent about how do we design these institutions that actually have both issues of justice and equity, as well as, in this case, issues of climate mitigation and climate risk management. It can't just be focused on mitigation. It can't just be equity doesn't matter. People are going to get hurt, if not killed. Whole societies may impact severely, but that's okay for the common good. Now, who are we to make those kind of judgments? So again, institutions is where it all kind of comes down to and blaming policymakers for either being too unaware, too dumb, or corrupt is, I think, not the right way to go about. It doesn't mean that they're not. All of them are doing an excellent job, not at all. So that's my book writing project now. I have a strong title, Fallacy of Evidence-Based Policymaking, because as researchers, that's what we do. The promise is how do you help come up with better policies, better decisions, how to communicate science effectively so that policymakers say, aha, We should be using this. But I've seen in my own research over the last 30 years and worked with some stellar researchers across the world, Indonesia, parts of Sub-Saharan Africa, Brazil, of course, the US and Europe, how so much of excellent research that's going on in broadly in this area of environment, climate and development, such a small percentage of them actually get used effectively and used in a meaningful manner, going beyond just the executive summary of a policy, actually to get used in the policy. So the question is why? And there are some standard explanations in uh, literature, sociology, political science, and public policy. So I'm trying to kind of untangle those to figure out what are we not doing right? Because increasingly, it's not lack of resource for research. That used to be the case, I think, in the 60s, 70s, and maybe part of the 80s. But now many governments, even companies, have pretty deep pockets when it comes to research. So I'm writing a manuscript on that, saying... What is it as researchers we're not doing? Oh, I agree completely. Science definitely needs more effective communication because data analysis flies over most people's heads. You know, many climate scientists say, well, the facts speak for themselves. But in fact, the facts don't speak for themselves. You have to speak for them. And I think uh, science needs to use more effective communication that includes storytelling, which addresses people's values so they understand why they're listening, why it matters, and why it affects them too. So have you improved your storytelling skills? I think effective storytelling is important. But then what do you do with the stories that you tell? So a key is to recognize whether it's climate smart development regenerative agriculture, offsetting or mitigation or climate smart cities, you're really talking about trade-offs. 
how do you organize trade-offs across space and across your priority of resourcing? That when you have to invest more in a water supply system, given a finite revenue base, you're going to get something less for some other thing, right? It could be for health or education or sanitation. So you need to recognize these trade-offs, make it obvious, make it transparent, and get people to commit to these trade-offs. Because a lot of us make this mistake of thinking that, oh, you can go to the World Bank or to the European Investment Bank or to African Development Bank. No, they are banks. Most of them are loans. Or you will have ODAs, the Overseas Development Assistance, say USAID or the French Financing for Development. They will come in. But they are relative to what governments bring in. Most countries, it's the government's revenue that goes into development. And so how do you kind of mobilize those development when you are single-minded? You're just saying, oh, this is what we need to do. It's climate. Someone else will say, no, 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 it's not actually not climate. It's really education or health. Actually, you really need to get food production up. There is massive insecurity coming up. So how do you kind of organize these trade-offs? That becomes important with the stories you say. And not just promise them, if you do this, this is what's going to happen. Because that is one stream of storytelling in its own silo. And that doesn't quite intertwine with these other stories that need to be told. So to give you an example, to make it real, in the course that I teach both at Columbia and at, at Sciences Po, we focus on sustainable development as narratives, not as given, not as that's one narrative, but sustainable development as narratives, because historically you have had important stories told about social inclusion, the importance of inclusion, importance of rights, not just political rights, but unfreedoms and freedoms. That's one aspect which is really important, considerations of equity. Post-COVID, especially when you have this rising inequality, how do you advance equity? At the same time, you also need to focus on environmental issues. That's another narrative. And historically, these two have never really come together, except now through sustainable development. So in my class, you can actually take students through these multiple narratives. When you're focusing for all the right reasons on reducing vulnerability of, of marginalized populations with no attention paid to environment. Now we know from our standpoint, that's not the right way to go about. And the same thing is when we just focus on a green solution. So our focus is on the politics of development. That's what I was saying when I was making clear issue importance of trade-offs. Because ultimately, politics is when you have demand for a resource outstripping the supply. For example, a family at home. Time is limited. So who does what in the family is actually a negotiation. It's a trade-off. You do the dishes, I'm going to cook. You take care of this, whatever, market, and I can do this. So in that sense, when you're talking of trade-offs, it becomes obvious you need to prioritize. And in the political system, these trade-offs need to be agreed upon. Otherwise, there'll be a pushback. From left field, you'll have some person coming in and saying, this is all nonsense. Look, they're threatening your very lifestyle. Vote for me. Right. Touching upon the disconnect between scientific research and policymaking, Dr. Shiv foregrounds an ongoing skepticism about science's capacity to motivate actual change in our civic lives and political landscapes. Science, in its abstract rhetoric of objectivity and narrow methodology, seems nowadays like it's operating in a totally different discursive context from policy. Historically, meta-narratives about humanity's progress coordinated scientific advancements with politics. As our science improves and we become more rationally sophisticated over time, our political circumstances will change to reflect that. We'll have achieved a supremely just political state, leaving behind all those natural tendencies that interfere with our ability to act morally. 
But now that reason has reduced its scope to data points, and justice is all fogged over by bureaucratic concerns, these narratives seem to have splintered off. Like Jean-Francois Lyotard puts it, we no longer purchase into the idea that science and politics share the same narrative plotline, that they pursue collective ends. Instead, he says, both are merely interested in legitimizing the rules of their own language games. Science speaks in quantitative generalizations, while politics speaks in qualitative ones. Neither one speaks together, nor do they feel like they take us as discrete individuals into account. And now, factoring in our echo chambers, where we only ever hear our own voices bouncing off the walls, our current situation begins to feel irremediably fragmented. Just as science can't reach politics, we can't even seem to reach other people. By signaling this problem and calling us as scientists, as politicians, national subjects, and individuals to look beyond our borders and think about the ways that climate change affects us regardless of where we prop them up, Dr. Shiv is helping us piece together our fragments. Like the poet T.S. Eliot, he's shoring these fragments up against our ruin. And yet he's not shoring them into a solid color, brick-like composite or a reductive portrayal of sameness, but into a mosaic, one in which we attend to differences. The ways that climate impacts each of us differentially, the ways that science and politics are both uniquely poised to address some kinds of questions but not others. And yet, still keeping in view the connective tissues that link us all together. Through Dr. Shiv's storytelling, I see a new meta-narrative on the rise. One premise on the assumption of a shared world, but with different people in it. And now, back to the interview. Yes, and I've heard stories talking about greening a city and planting trees. And from another point of view, I've heard, you know, young people mm-hmm. in these neighborhoods that maybe were a ghetto before and now it's being gentrified and they see the planting of trees. It causes them anxiety because they feel they'll have to move from a previous neighborhood they were in and then it gentrified. And then so it creates this the narrative perspective is exactly. more positive and negative. Yeah. yeah, no, exactly. So how we really need to, to make sure they're informed because the example you gave is really powerful because in their living memory, they have seen what gentrification means. When you have cool dudes moving in and everyone is rushing in to have a cup of java in the morning and then rents are going to go up. They're going to be out. And not just in these global cities like New York and Berlin and Paris, but even in cities in the global south, you have this fear of gentrification and hence the rejection of it. And the rejection is all for the wrong reasons because to press home the issue of equity, you need to include them in your plans. And it can't just be at tick box saying, oh yeah, we have gotten civil society stakeholders on the table, right? The question to ask is what stake do they hold? Who are they? Who do they represent? Do they have, are they accountable to the people they say they represent? Okay. And sometimes the answers would be surprising, right? So democratizing trade-offs is really, really important. And we need to do that in a formal sense and not behind the scenes, make decisions and then have a PR campaign with beautiful stories and billboards. That doesn't work anymore if it ever did. And here in Paris, of course, there's talk about making it car-free. I don't know if that's possible, but again, you talk about the yellow jackets or people being left out of cities and their services. And Yeah, the yellow vest here, it didn't begin uh, so much because of inequities in Paris. It's much larger because of the seemingly austere measures. Driving a private car became more expensive because the price of gasoline was going up and because of making more efficient the public system, hospitals were closed and consolidated, and so they had to go further. The same thing with schools. And so it really was much larger than Paris, but since Paris is the center of power, that's why they used to come here. But again, there's issues of doing all the right things for the people, but badly managing, getting the level of trust back. Trust is another really important issue, which now is at, I think, an all-time low in most countries around the world, especially in democracies. And one can argue that trust is a two-way street. 
and so trust needs to be gained. The system really needs to perform in order to enable a high level of trust. And your own example of how youngsters, when they look at trees, they feel it's the beginning of the end of themselves in that neighborhood because they lost trust in the system to do the right thing for them. In their minds, they are outside the system. What's happening now is against their interest. So almost like a kind of a single drumbeat. Again, it comes to how do you design these institutional mechanisms, incentives, penalties? How do you bring in issues of justice and equity? While front and center, you have this hugely important climate transition that's coming up. And so you've developed these training events for universities, government agencies, mm -hmm. research institutes. How did you learn to effectively communicate to those different groups in, in order to drive change? Yeah, we've had training programs in many different parts of the world. For example, Jordan, Indonesia, India, Philippines, very different kind of sensibilities of development, different levels of trust with government. The role of private sector is very different. So in terms of science, we try to bring in the best of science. We did a lot of this when I was at the Earth Institute at Columbia University. But then the first few days before the training, we worked closely with key people because they're coming from outside. We need to be mindful of the national government concerns. We work with not only the national government ministries, but also with city level and some key NGOs that are suggested to us, we triangulate. Just because a national spokesperson says you need to work with this NGO doesn't mean we work with them. We actually try to figure out through various other channels who are the NGOs who are doing interesting work, interesting in the sense of useful work with the communities here. And so our intention there is when we use some of these terms, what does it mean for them? You can't take it for granted that everyone has the same understanding. That's why always we begin with something very basic. Like, what does climate change mean for you? And to be surprised, so many people talk as though climate change is in the future. Oh, yeah, we heard 2100, that's going to be cataclysmic. Well, like, partly okay, you're not totally wrong, but you're actually living. The climate is changing. And of course, climate is changing also because of natural means, because of natural reasons, drivers, but also anthropogenic. So what does anthropogenic mean? So through this kind of a dialogic encounter, we begin to unpack what is the meaning, what does it mean? Has your government done anything? Has your local company done anything for this? And they'll be like, oh yeah, they've done this amazing work, but it's only, I mean, hasn't really trickled down to us, but we're expecting. Because they've seen the national communication on, on climate change. Okay, and then we unpack a couple of those. So it's really important to work with them, understand their understanding, because otherwise it becomes a useless exercise. You may be there for two weeks and you feel that you've done a lot. You go away and you come back after six months, None of this is used in their everyday work. And the whole point is to leave this kind of knowledge to be useful in their work. Too often, when you hold these training programs uh, around the world, they remain as PowerPoint presentations. They remain as workshop reports. Impressive. Impressive, no doubt. But then when you go back after a year, two years, the decisions change. And maybe it's too arrogant for us to assume after a training program, the decisions will change. But at least, was it a new language, a new sensibility? in the way they approached climate smart and not just smart cities. Too many parts around the planet when we talk about smart cities, it is basically data crunching. It's just use of IT. So when you talk about climate smart, it's just not smart cities plus climate issues. No, it's a whole different ballgame. It's a very different approach to urban development, urban planning. What are some of the success stories you've had from those training sessions or just countries or cities that you feel are accelerating that change a bit faster? Mm -hmm. Let me talk from my own experience, so it's not going to be objective. And this is the thing with objective even when people have done their own 
work. As long as you're objective about your biases, that's the best one can do. So we did this really, really interesting project many, many years ago in a city of Gauhati which is in Northeast India in the state of Assam. The state government approached us, us in the sense of Earth Institute, to say, Gawahati is going to get impacted by climate change. We're here. So as you guys are experts in climate change and cities, can you come and help us? So we did really, really interesting work over a couple of years with local institutions, NGOs, institutions based in India, the I Delhi, the Indian Institute of Technology Delhi, they'll be doing some really, really interesting work on kind of both climate variability and change over the next coming decades. Sustainable Urbanism International, that was an NGO based in Bangalore. So we did this work, and what was surprising to them and to us was Hati is going to be impacted by climate change, but the key drivers are not because of monsoonal variability or Brahmaputra basin, which is what their fear was. The two key drivers were extremely local. Their land use plan did not reflect the reality of their ecology. They're using the steep slopes in the wrong manner. They were putting roads and housing in places that should not have roads and housing. They should actually have more forests there. They were not cleaning up, desilting these water canals and channels ahead of the monsoon. Or if they were, it was not done properly. And if it was done properly, possibly some level of rent seeking was involved. And so the silt went back in. So it becomes much more complex than saying climate change and this is what you need to do. I keep telling my students, when you begin to focus your policy energies on climate change, basically also what you're doing is you're giving a free pass to policymakers, both of the past and current. City-level policymaker will tell you, oh, Mia, that's because of climate change. What can we do? We're a poor city. Or even if in a city like Paris, oh, that's because of climate change. But actually, most cities around the planet can do a much better job managing current climate variability, which we're not doing, whether it's a storm surge or whether it's return periods of drought. People, cities were used to, say, drought every six, seven years. But most cities can't even handle that. It becomes kind of chaotic, let alone when now we're beginning to have drought every four years. So it is important, and I'll just digress. A quick digression. When people use the term climate migrant, you need to be really alert. You really need to open up that Pandora's box of who is a climate migrant. It's really important to be analytically rigorous because by saying that a group of people are climate migrants. You're giving a free pass to current policymakers. They'll say, oh, because of climate change, they're becoming migrants. But quite a lot of time, it is either the lack of development or it's the wrong kind of development. For example, rain-fed agriculture in very small farms is the wrong approach. And many governments continue to have that approach. So you can actually fault current policymakers. Nobody wants to move. Very, very few people like being translocated hundreds of miles with great deal of uncertainty. Right? So what forced them to move? What was it about development that was not right, that didn't serve them well? Another one is climate justice. You need to unpack what aspect of justice are you talking about? What is unjust here? Why is it unjust? How that is connected to issues of climate variability and change? And what are the other deeper processes and structures that have nothing to do with climate that have made this unjust development. It's so important. What you're talking here about is not imposing ourselves on the land and learning to listen and speak the language of the earth, as I understand. You know, going back to your origins and architecture, we've witnessed an unprecedented emphasis on sustainability and architecture. Architects are, as you're mentioning, are increasingly incorporating eco-friendly materials, mm -hmm. energy-efficient designs, and green spaces into their creations to combat climate change and promote harmony with nature. 
but we still see these devastating statistics like in the US up to a billion birds dying from collisions with buildings yes. each mm -hmm. year. How do we address that? I think there are many things. One is, I think under specific example, it's both lighting of our cities and the use of glass. So then how do we become much more sensitive to birds getting whacked? They don't see the glass and they get confused with these all night lights. And I think some cities are mandating beyond a certain time. You can't really have a building all lit. Getting away from glass is going to be a tough one because in extremely dense, crowded settlements we have around the planet, a return to traditional local materials may not be feasible anymore at scale. I mean, you'll always have maybe neighborhoods, smaller towns, maybe tier three cities. It's still really important. But I think embracing new technologies and new materials is the way forward while being aware of unintended costs. For example, in your own example about the bird, that was not intentional at all. But now we have known this for a couple of decades, and yet action is really slow. And then I think we really need to have much harsher penalty systems for cities or owners of these large buildings. And you edited, which I think is an unusual project for you, Reliving the Memories of an Indian Forester. Uh, oh, you managed to get your hand on that as well? Well, that was something dear to my heart, because that's my father's memoir. He was an outstanding, he passed away from COVID a few years ago now, outstanding forester, outstanding in the sense, technically really good, administratively really good, and super honest. These three qualities served him well, which I believe now are more difficult to find. So this book is all about his series of vignettes. What is post-colonial forestry? In this case, it was in India, 1947, beginning in the 1950s, when he joined the Forest Service, how it was and what was the expectation and what were the forces at play and how India was, for all the right reasons, increasing agriculture production and forest lands had to be kind of given to agriculture. And 40 years later, the whole thing completely transformed. So he would write the, the first draft of a chapter, then he'd send it off to me and I would read it, do all the changes, comments, send it back to him. And then we would have, over the course of two weeks, intense discussion. And he was always pulling me back to the original. And I was always trying to take him to, no, no, that doesn't quite gel, you know. I want to make sure you keep your voice because he had a nice style of conveying. So reliving the memories was really a neat way of trying to tell the current generation, especially the youngsters, how managing forests is not just black and white. It's not that the governments and the state are this kind of evil, and then you have NGOs and communities are these goody two shoes or whatever, three shoes or whatever. So it's in the gray areas that you can actually make the most effective forest management. And because we are easy, now we are so careless in the way we approach things we think we understand, and we're dismissive. We are quick to judgment. And that's one thing I hope that in my class and the current generation really needs to be far more reflective and not just because something doesn't gel with what they think is the right thing, is the just thing. They can't just dismiss it out of hand, right? So, and one way to really gain a better understanding is to read widely, not just read what you agree with. Don't just talk to people you agree with. It's important to talk to people you agree with as, as a way to reinforce your own sense of self and confidence and so on. But read and discuss widely, especially read those things that you disagree with and then ask yourself, why? Why are you having this reaction? Why this emotion, negative emotion? Go to the heart of why you think you disagree with this. So it's a combination. It's not pure rationality. You're not like trying to make this a pure rational exercise, but you also, you need to have passion, but you need to, I think, guide the passion 
through this reflective discursive exercise. And also it enables the young to become better communicators. You need to be open to being questioned. You don't outshout the questioner. You really need to be able to answer these uncomfortable questions. And that's the way for persuasion, to get someone who thinks, oh, climate change is just nonsense. Your uncle, Thanksgiving dinner, you hate it because he's going to be there saying, oh, this is all nonsense, right? Engage. And of course, you have power dynamics over which you have no control, especially when you're young. And that's something they really need to also figure out. How does one work in a situation of power and powerlessness? But there is no substitute for knowing. But otherwise, all the passion you bring to the table can get knocked off with the second question because we are unable to answer that. So it's really important to read widely, to be engaged. And by read, I mean more than just the social media. I see my daughters engaged, deeply engaged. They do read. But I think many people, for them, what they get in the social media, these echo chambers, is all that they're exposed to which I think is extremely unfortunate. Oh, yes, absolutely. And that's what we're trying to change here today. So thank you, Shiv Somashwa, for your openness and opening our minds to the wider story, for sharing your insights into sustainable development, helping us understand structural crises, inequities, it creates solutions to move us in a positive direction towards a more sustainable and just society. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to One Planet Podcast and the creative process. Thanks. Thanks, Mia. One Planet Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interview producers on this episode were Sam Myers and Virginia Moschetti. Additional production support by Sophie Garnier. Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you enjoyed this program. If you'd like to get involved in One Planet Podcast and be part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.